Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 71, Mind-like Space. Author and meditation teacher Susan Piver continues her discussion with us on the intersection of meditation and writing. We also touch on issues of marketing the Dharma, the personality type of the Buddha, and the value of using productivity systems. Listen in as Susan racks up the geek points. This is part two of a two-part series. I was wondering, we, we spoke to Gregory Kramer, who teaches this kind of interpersonal meditation. He does something kind of similar, but in a different arena where um, they'll be meditating a lot together, and then they'll work on this kind of interpersonal dialogue and really seeing the interpersonal suffering that arises and, mm-hmm. and really working with it on that level. And I wouldn't, and he, he mentioned that people have very unique insights when they're, they're discussing a topic together in a, in a contemplative type of way. And I'm wondering if you found that with uh, the people that do retreats, are they having any kind of unique insights due to the writing process being something, engaging a certain aspect of themselves that they might not see clearly if they're just doing like intensive silent practice? That's a really interesting question. And yes, now that you mention it, I mean, I try to stay away from that because I, everybody's, you know, you, I don't want to get in, in, butt into anybody's experience. And it's so private. But what I do see is not so much interpersonal, but I see when the person sits down to write, often they'll tell me, I thought I was going to sit down to write this, but I ended up writing that. Or, you know, one of the most poignant experiences of that was a guy, because any kind of writer can do this retreat, fiction, nonfiction, poetry. One guy came, he was a, a business writer, and he wanted to write a brochure for a service that he was and he, and he was an awesome guy, and he came to two of the retreats, and he's a great guy. But he sat down in one of the writing periods to work on his brochure and ended up writing like this six-page tear-stained letter to his father about all these losses that he'd experienced in his life in relation to other men, friends who had died, his father mentors. He, he was a guy, even though he was a middle-aged guy, he was a p- kind of person that had very strong affinity for sort of mentors and fathers and brothers. And so he had suffered pain from those relationships, normal kinds of pain. And that's what he wrote about. And it was just so dear and so... So yes, yeah, so things, unexpected things like that happen. But they also always happen when you write. You don't quite know where you're pen is taking you so but that's a pretty extreme example yeah that that makes a lot of sense and i I was just thinking about the normal retreat experience where thoughts and feelings come and go and but there's not really ever an intention to give them a a particular expression Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems like maybe there's some way in which that when it's expressed it could be um unique in some way yeah i mean trungpa rinpoche was an artist and wrote a lot about art. And he didn't write about it like, because I'm a meditation master, I can make great, um, you know, calligraphies. It was more like the calligraphy was the meditation practice and the one-pointedness and the wakefulness and, excuse me. So in that sense, I'm just, I guess I'm struggling to say not to, that one isn't used for the benefit of the other, but they really are on a continuum. 
doing these two things together, I, I mean, it's actually, it's mind-blowing. I don't, in some of the things I read, they often reference self-existing wisdom and, you know, wisdom that is just always present. And, and I always re- think, oh, I'd like to know that, that wisdom. But it's self-existing, so you, you, you can't know it. But you are, you are in it. And my experience, this is my working hypothesis, is it's sort of composed of different uh, strands, for lack of a better word. And when you do a meditative practice and then an expressive practice, those strands seem to sort of differentiate a little bit. And you can hear your own version of self-existing wisdom clearly. And it's really, uh, I don't know what the word is, it's, it's staggering. Connected to that, do you find there's something about the feminine principle in all this? That's Yeah, that, I, that's a great question. I never thought about that. My understanding of the feminine principle is that it's aligned with space. In the Shambhala tradition, there's, they often talk about a sense of containment or a container, like you go on a retreat and there's a container for your experience. Like we could sit and do those practices here and it would be fine, but when you do them in a place that is built to contain them, it's different, it's powerful. And the thing that creates the container, which to me is a part of the feminine principle, although I could be completely wrong, is schedule. It's funny that something that mundane is the container. But if you do the practice at a certain time of the day, and then you do this other practice for you know a certain period of time, and then this third thing, it creates a sense of containment. Because the hardest thing for every writer is to just write. It's just to sit down and start writing. There is nobody with a cleaner house than a writer who's on a deadline. <laughs> There's no one with cleaner hair or <laughs> neater drawers. or <laughs> So just you have to rely on something else to be your banana peel to slip into it because somehow just willing yourself to do it doesn't work. And so the container, of, that does help a lot. And to me, that is somehow connected with feminine principle. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think of the stereotype for a lot of artists or creative people where they just they just go insane. Basically they have all this creative energy coming through and then they just go, just go crazy really trying to express it. And they like don't sleep and do drugs and, and then, and then it it can get cut off at times and then they're just completely depressed and like, where's my creativity? And it sounds like what you're describing is much more balanced than that. Yeah. Hopefully it's like, yeah, because practice lets you sort of go, okay, I'm, completely despairing and have nothing to say, but I don't have to kill myself because that's just what's happening right now. So in that sense, it really helps. It doesn't mean you don't feel like crap and just are completely despairing and crying and cookie crumbs all over yourself or whatever it might be, (laughs) but still you can work with it. So yeah, I think I personally don't know how someone without a meditation practice could possibly stand to write a book or do anything without completely losing their minds. 
because it's so hard. Thank you for that tip. So I don't go insane. <laughs> I want to write a book. <laughs> keep, keep meditating. Good. <laughs> oh, and keep writing too. Yes, definitely. I remember the last time I taught a retreat. It was just a weekend. It was in New York. And I'd, I'd never done it in two days, but it was great. I really liked it. And I said, we're going to do this practice. We're going to do this exercise. And then we're going to spend a lot of time writing. Mm-hmm. And the people in the room kind of went, oh, writing? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. We have to write. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, you have to write. <laughs> so that's part of it, too. Right. Nice. Well, um, switching gears a little bit, I, I think we kind of started hitting on uh, a part of this question when we first, in our, when we first started talking. Um, but you have a, a company, Pod, uh, Padme Media. And, um, and so you've helped people like Shambhala Sun and Sounds True. And something we've talked a lot about on Buddhist Geeks uh, in several conversations is how... Um, marketing comes into Dharma and Dharma centers, uh, just in general. And there's a lot of debate on that. Um, a, a kind of controversial thing we often talk about, uh, that, that kind of more, I don't know, we don't often talk about it, but it, it, it uh, kind of cues this is, uh, like for example, Gimpo Roshi's big mind process, and it very much has an explicit marketing thing to it. And so it's, it's just a kind of maybe an example, but uh, of, underlying issues so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the work you do um because marketing is a big piece of that company if if we understand correctly and um how you go about that how it's helpful or and then also maybe some things that are tricky or could be potentially harmful about that Mm. yeah i have two i can tell you two stories that uh gave me the lessons that i try to you know that have worked for me now Uh for pretty many years and i the first one was I was producing a project, a book plus a CD called Joyful Mind, and I wanted to put different meditation teachers to write about what they taught and then to record the practice. So, you know, this was probably six or seven years ago, and meditation was starting to get to be not a completely bizarre thing. So <laughs> what, do you want to do Zen or Vipassana or what, you know, what is the difference between all of these things? So anyway, I wanted all these... I invited mm. these teachers. Yeah. Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche taught Shamata, and Edward S. P. Brown taught Zazen, and it was a wonderful, wonderful. Tulku Tundup led a healing meditation, and it's really cool. Oh, it was awesome! It was awesome. Sharon Salzberg taught Maitri, Metta, and uh, anyway. But before I did it, I know that meditation instruction is not just an explanation; it's a transmission. Mm-hmm. So, it's a transmission because your teacher has taught it to you and their teachers taught them and etc. So I was worried, could this be a transmission if it was just a CD that someone put in their player? So mm. I went to my teacher, the Sakyong, and I asked him, can I do this? <laughs> Is this okay? <laughs> and he gave me the best answer. He said, because, uh, you know, it's like my marketing meditation uh-huh. or am I trying to offer it? Right. And he said, well, when you're offering a spiritual teaching, and this applies to anything, I think, the first thing that you need to do is create confidence in the mind of the listener mm. or the reader. Mm-hmm. Because then they can relax and listen to you. The way to create confidence is to offer something real. Mm-hmm. And the way to know what is real is to offer something that has been taught for millennia and 
that you know from your personal experience is correct. So that trifecta, you know, presents something that inspires confidence. Confidence is um, merited when something real is presented. Something real is that which you yourself know to be true. That is a great instruction. And so I thought, okay, I this can be a transmission if those three things are 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 included. And so I've used that ever since. So that's very helpful. And then the second thing I learned, I was having a discussion with my meditation teacher, who, this was even longer ago, maybe 10 years ago, who also worked in publishing. And I said, I have a chance to do this project with this person who's really famous. And I could, and I, I just started Padma Media, and it would be real, you know, landmark project for me and blah, blah. But I think this guy is really cheesy. <laughs> what should I do? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he, and I was broke. And he gave me the best answer. He said, well, it, it doesn't matter which, you, you, it doesn't matter what you decide to do as long as the intention is right. Mm-hmm. But here's the kicker. Mm. Then it doesn't matter if the result manifests in the heaven realm or the hell realm. Mm. So in other words, if your intention is right, whatever that means, mm-hmm. then whether the project itself succeeds or goes up in a giant ball of smoke mm-hmm. and tanks, <laughs> the mm. karmic fruition will be correct. Interesting. I thought that was, that's my interpretation yeah. of what he said. So if the intention is right, then it doesn't matter if the result manifests in the heaven realm or the hell realm. So that was, you know, I think a way of saying mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if it works or it doesn't work. Yeah. You will have been, you, you'll have done the right thing. Yeah, that really cuts to the chase of it, I think. Um, yes, it does. And the whole uh, <laughs> dialogue of uh, marketing and, and dharma and uh, the intention. And that makes a lot of sense to me because that's what I've always focused on. I, I've never had that big of a problem with it when I've looked at, uh, you know, marketing and how people go about communicating the Dharma because I, I, if I believe that their intention is good, it's like, there has to be something good here. You know? I, I agree. And if you're saying, I'm going to get publicity for this by, by pretending that it's something not, like I'm going to, for instance, I'm going to pretend that Buddhism doesn't start with, you know, life is suffering, or I'm going to pretend that you're right. going to, you're not going to die or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> you're going to like, you know, you don't have to say that right away or anything, but if you sort of try to make it seem like, oh, it's this nice thing with happy perky people in order to get someone in and then, you know, bop them with the truth, that's not a good idea. Yeah. And when you were talking, I was thinking about the intention, how, how simple that is and yet how complex Mm-hmm. At the same time, and I was thinking, well, in the case where you were broke, certainly there's a, a part of it which is like there can be a genuine care for yourself and and for your well being and your in your livelihood mm-hmm. um, that plays a part. And even if this guy's really cheesy, maybe it, maybe it makes sense, you know? Right. I decided not to do it, by the way, because I knew that my intention was totally just to get over. I just wanted to get over, and. You know, there are other people, many people, millions of people that thought this particular teacher was very helpful. But still, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. But, you know, that was my choice. And I could have understood anyone in my position making the other choice, given those parameters. 
Yeah, it seems like it's a it's a tricky thing, and it makes maybe even more tricky given the socioeconomic structure we have here in the West, and yeah. where capitalism it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it, it does it does play a a, a major role in in choices, right. especially in business choices. Yeah, and marketing is not a complicated danger zone. It's it is for us because we have what I call image poisoning, image poisoning, where we live in a world where we believe that how things look is what they are. And so if you look successful, you are successful. And if I can make this thing look valuable, then it is valuable. So it's really fraught with all these implications that are not necessary. Yeah, and it brings it back the whole eight worldly concerns. I, it comes to mind when you're saying that because, I mean, part of the Buddhist teachings was like these things come and go: fame and disrepute, come and go; pleasure and pain, gain and loss. And I can never remember the other two. <laughs> but uh, you know, like, and that makes so much sense in my own experience. Like these things, just like they're really not controllable. And so, whether or not, um, like you're saying, whether or not a project's successful. It, the intention is really what, what's key there, and that that's what actually has some sort of result, not the actual result. That's right. Yeah, that's perfectly that seems, said. That makes a lot of sense from a from a practicing practitioner perspective. It's really helpful, isn't it? Yeah, that was such a helpful thing that he said. Yeah, seem to know what he's talking about on a couple things for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about that the other day. What a geeky guy! Like he he must have been one of the geekiest. Who? Which guy? The Buddha. Oh, the Buddha. I was just thinking about, uh, you know, all those lists and all those teachings and uh, man, he, he must've just been sitting there going, okay, wait, we're going to have to come up with a whole new like framework to explain this today. Right, right. <laughs> I wish he, we could get him on the show. I love that about him. <laughs> well, at the end of this meditation retreat, this is going to sound like it doesn't relate, but it does. I'm teaching a second program for the weekend. It's on the Enneagram. Have you ever yeah, heard yeah, for sure. So yeah, I have it over there somewhere. You do? Yeah, I have a few Enneagram books somewhere oh, in my God. stack of books. I love I'm it. Huge, huge student of the Enneagram. And so the Buddha, according to conventional wisdom, the Buddha was not anything, but he was a five on the Enneagram. Wow. So that's. <laughs> no wonder we like him so much. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you can relate to him. Right. Yeah, this is, uh, it's not really connected again, or it is connected, but um, we noticed that you're a fan of GTD. Yes. <laughs> and again, this is going to add to your geeky points, because I think you're the first person that we've had on the show that's also into a into productivity system like GTD. So. Totally into it. I can't, I have like so many, I know about all, you. the one you recommended to me the other day, I checked out by the way, I appreciate it. Nice. But I'm constantly like looking for the right system and, and I... And it's a pleasurable sort of search. It's not like a, it's not like a big horrible chore. I like trying to figure it out. Yeah, I was wondering if you could say a little bit about how that supported everything you do in your life, and and how that fits in with like the Buddhist approach to life. If you if you see a connections there, well, I do actually because and David Allen in his books he talks about mind like water. I don't know what he means by that exactly, but um, I I. Uh, Notice when I started doing it, I had this incredibly calm mind. And 
it wasn't like calm, like I'd had a good night's sleep. It was calm, like deeply settled. And it felt fantastic. And so to me, it had like the spiritual implication. And I, I actually met him once and I did one of those half day seminars or day or something. And I said, you know, this has really got a spiritual implication. He kind of poo-pooed me. And anyway, I, I talked to him about doing a project together for Padma Media because all of those things, you want those things. You want those, a notebook or the little pads he talks about or whatever. Anyway, we didn't do it, but he, I got a day of coaching from a GTD coach for free just to see what it was like. And she came to my office and we touched every piece of paper and every email and she made me a tickler file and all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, re- I remember leaving the office. I, I felt like the state of ecstasy. <clears throat> like I don't know that I had felt even from like meditation practice, lengthy meditation practice. I felt this kind of blissed out like, Oh my God. <laughs> I felt so like, I felt so uplifted and happy not in a mundane way so that's the connection for me yeah yeah i often often wonder or often think that that's one of the things a lot of buddhist communities could use a little more of is like some sort of system to get things done in the world yeah and that oftentimes there sometimes there's a split you know and i've seen this myself too or it's like oh there's just meditation in that world and getting things done efficiently product you know uh, being productive is somehow feeding into some sort of potentially like poisonous uh, yeah. thing I mean, and it, sure it can be but yeah maybe it is but yeah you don't have to assume that it is but that ecstasy you know <laughs> <laughs> i love that <laughs> i will never forget it driving home it's like mind like something else than water right <laughs> mind like space <laughs> it was great yeah and it, it is interesting i know david allen did maybe didn't give you credence on the spiritual thing but we also uh the other person we really love uh, is uh, Mark Hurst. I don't know who that is. Uh, Bit Literacy. He wrote that. Uh, it's a really. Oh, you emailed me that. Yeah, um, he's he's kind of productivity meeting the virtual world, and uh, and we interviewed him on uh, Persistent Change, our personal development show, and uh, he he has a quote in there or a, a phrase in there that we love. He says, "Let the bits go." And he constantly says it, and, and getting to emptiness, like in inbox. So we don't know if he has any sort of background, but it's really interesting that uh, that a lot of these. Uh, newer, uh, more popular productivity uh, authors and coaches are, they very much have a system that has, you can really connect some principles from practice and it doesn't seem to conflict at all. That's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I can see exactly what you mean. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us and and taking time out before your retreat to share with us on on the work that you're doing. It seems like really great stuff. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me and I will see you on Twitter. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, 
self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Stancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.